Thank you so much, Daniel. Thanks for coming out tonight. Uh, what an important subject to focus on parenting. Um, just to get a little feel, how many of you have children that are zero through three years old? Raise your hand. Zero through three. Okay, four through six. Four through six. Uh, seven through ten. How many of you have had your hand up three times now? Okay, uh, 11 through 15. Okay, 16 through 18. And 19 or above that are still home. Okay, well, about time to kick them out. Okay. Children are wonderful. We talked about marriage last night. I believe when it comes to marriage that children are instruments of Satan. <laughs> and what he actually means is not that they are from Satan, but that Satan can use our children to divide our marriage, right? That's true. You know, you have a two-year-old and you're hugging in the kitchen. Where does that two-year-old get? right between you, and they push you away from each other, and they'll, boogers will do that until you kick them out of the house. So we love children. We're glad you're here for parenting, but uh, don't let your children ruin your marriage. The best gift you can give your children next to introducing them to Jesus is a solid marriage. And you can do all sorts of things, but a solid marriage is a Second best thing you can do for your children, so make sure you focus that. Well, we're going to talk on parenting tonight. Uh, many of you know the name Charles Shed, Charlie Shedd, who wrote years ago, and the story is said that he was going to write a book on parenting before he had any children. And the title, working title for the book was The Final Word on How to Raise Great Kids. Then they had one. And he changed the title to How to Raise Normal Kids. Then they had another one, and he changed the title again, Some Miscellaneous Thoughts on Raising Children. And then they became teenagers, and the final title was Does Anybody Have Any Ideas at All? Uh, and, you know, our children, we were just talking, I was just talking to Iris before, that the day we're living in today is so different than the day when I was a child. Uh, when I was a child, if I wanted to look at a Playboy magazine, I had to go to the drugstore and ask the drugstore owner if he would get one from behind the desk and give it to me. And of course, he knew my dad, so there was never a question. But today, it's just a click away. And so uh, we want to start by acknowledging that these days we're living in are challenging and uh, for us. And that's why... Uh, we're going to be teaching from a Christian perspective tonight, whether that's your perspective or not, but we want you to just hear that we believe that helping our children have their own values is so critical because the day of us watching over them is and dictating everything they're doing is over. The other thing we want to just say as we start as an umbrella principle is that we do not have the final word on our children's outcome on the decisions that they ultimately make as we launch them into the world, we do not have the power, we don't have the luxury, we don't have what it takes 
to make the ultimate decisions that they will make in life. And that's on purpose, right? Because if we could make their decisions for them, they would have no reason to do any thinking. And ultimately, the decision wouldn't be owned by them. And so we say that especially because I think there's so much pressure and so much guilt often that's attached to parenting, especially if your child acts out in a certain way or will say when they act out in a certain way, we immediately look inward and wonder what we did wrong and how we fail as a parent. I'll just level the court and say we all fail as parents. There is no perfect parenting journey. But ultimately, we trust that Creator God is the one who is going to get a hold of our children's hearts. At the end of the day, whether regardless of what your theological position is, if you believe in predestination, if you're a strong Calvinist, you realize that the decision has already been made by God. If you're Armenian in your philosophy or in your theological position, you realize that it's ultimately their will and not your will. And so we just say that right at the outset to frame this with the truth that ultimately it will be God's grace working out in the lives of our children for them to grow up and be followers of his. So there are no guarantees, but there are probabilities. And so it isn't like, well, it's just a crapshoot and you never know. Some follow the Lord, some don't. Uh, there is a huge responsibility on us as parents uh, to create an atmosphere most conducive to our children wanting to follow Christ. And so that's what we'll focus on for a while as we start. How do we create that atmosphere that helps our children long to follow him? So let's pray together as we start. Father, it's so good to be in your house with your people, and tonight to be able to focus on this incredible opportunity and responsibility of raising children um, to honor you in a world that does not honor you as a whole. So we pray that you will guide us and just through your spirit, give us what we need to hear from you tonight in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to talk about four areas tonight. Uh, first, live a life worth imitating. Uh, second, live a life of unconditional love. Third, live a life that embraces the goodness of authority. And last, live a life of expectation. So first, uh, live a life worth imitating. Philippians 4.9 says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Well, what would, how does that... How does that play in your family? If you say to your children, whatever you've learned and received and heard and seen me, just do those things. Uh, we're calling our children, and our children do imitate, do they not? Ephesians 5.1 says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Give your attention to the screen, and let us just illustrate that real quickly. I wonder where she learned that. Uh, our children imitate us, do they not? 
It's actually one of the things I really love about scripture is just how real and how practical it is. So this verse out of Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God, therefore as dearly loved children. God is just affirming that children imitate. So that either sends terror through us as we consider some of the things that we hope they will not imitate, or it bolsters us in thinking, yeah, we're really trying to model a lot of good things, and all of us have a mix of that. Every single one of us have things that we think, oh my goodness, I certainly hope they don't imitate that. And there are things that we really do hope that they observe and will replicate in their own lives. When our older two daughters were two and four, we lived on Catalina Island. I was working in the kitchen. I hear them call me from the bathroom. Mama, we need you in here. So I came running into the bathroom, and I walked in on this scene of Carrie was on the big throne reading a book, and Lisa was on the little potty chair reading a cookbook upside down. I said, girls, what do you need? Mama, we just need more mazagines in the bathroom. Now, I had never set out to teach them that the bathroom has a dual purpose. But they had observed, and without me ever saying a word, they were imitating what they were seeing. And I was a little bit horrified at that moment to realize that they, they, nothing was going to get by them. That what they saw happening in our home, they were going to internalize, whether I ever put a word to it or not. They were just natural imitators. So we want to look at three areas that we especially want our children to imitate. And the first is a love for the Lord and a love for his word. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. I'm convinced that most children who walk away from the Lord don't do it because they don't know doctrine. They do it because they haven't seen experience. They haven't experienced what they've been told. Son, when I became a Christian, it was the most joyful day of my life. I've never had so much joy. I hope someday, when you're as old as I am, you have as much joy as I... What? What kid's going to want to do that? Like I said, if you've got the joy of the Lord in your heart, would you mind notifying your face? You know, it, it, it's not that we're laughing all the time, but there should be a vitality. Our children should say, when I grow up, I want to be like mom. I want to be like dad. I want to have a marriage like you. And I think we just need to make sure that our homes are vital homes and that our homes are fun homes. Uh, some of you aren't fun parents. Invite somebody in your house that's fun. Get some fun people in your kid's life. They need to know that certainly there are so many aspects of the Christian faith that are serious, but the, the joy of the Lord is our strength. I've come that you might have life, and not boringly, but abundantly. And we of all people should be people who are living lives of joy, and our children should be seeing that. We want them to catch that, if you will. Actually, it's one thing we've been very impressed with as we partnered with Maranatha Chapel this week, is I think that you have a church that loves celebration, and that's just a great thing. We understand that we didn't miss by very much the Feast of the Trumpets, and I thought, if you have teenagers that are in this sanctuary while you're celebrating the Feast of the Trumpets, they are going to be drawn to the celebratory aspect of followers of Jesus. That is just a really good thing. So as we model a love for God's word and for him, 
One of the things that's most important as we walk this out is that we actually are walking out what we say we believe. Our kids hear a lot of moral lessons at church. They hear a lot of things about how Christians should be. And to be very honest, if there is not a congruency between what they're being taught, even in your home about scripture and God's call on their life, and how life is lived out in your home, they'll eventually question the veracity of it. They'll eventually say, why, why are we wasting so much time going to church when it doesn't seem to make a difference Monday through Saturday? A young family came to family camp in New England with us. They had just come to Christ, but were eager learners. Their sons were young. They were at that time 12, 10, and 8. For Christmas, the first year after they became Christians, their oldest son got an iPod. And he was kind of a forgetful kid, and he stuck his iPod in his cargo pants pocket and forgot about it before he threw them into the laundry. They went through the wash, and it came out, and though the iPod was then clean, it was non-functioning. So Carter, the dad, took his son Owen to the Apple store to see if there would be any hope to resurrect this iPod. They explained to the genius behind the counter how it got washed, and it's just not working. And the genius said, well, that's true. They weren't designed to be washed, so we get that. And he said, quite honestly, I can't replace it for you because you've told me why it isn't working. I would just suggest that you go to another Apple store and just don't tell them what happened. Just say, my kid got this six weeks ago. It's not working. And he said, there's a good chance they'll just replace that for you. As Carter told us the story, he said, Owen's eyes got huge, like, yes. And then Carter said, I really appreciate that you're just trying to help us out, but we do know why the iPod isn't working, so we'll just take the responsibility of replacing it. And that story moves me deeply because I thought, that kid, Owen, is going to hear tons of stories through his years of growing up in church of how important integrity and honesty is, but none will drive the biblical principle deep, more deeply into his heart than that day at the Apple store when his dad said, it's more important to be integrous and to be a man of character than it is to save a few bucks. Owen is actually in seminary now to become a pastor. And I've just thought so many times of his parents were so intentional about the practical application of scriptural truth in everyday life. That connects it for not only us, but for our kids. And we want our children to see scripture as good, not as burdensome. First John 5.3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. They're, they're life-giving. When our children were very young, we uh, were gifted a weekend at a hotel and had a swimming pool, and, which is just a, a fun thing. And our girls were five, three, and just nursing uh, one year old. And our oldest daughter, Carrie, uh, said, Daddy, I want to show you I can swim across the pool. And Virginia was nursing Julie, our youngest daughter, on ways away. And, and so I said, oh, that's wonderful. I said, Lisa, just stay on the side out of the pool. Carrie's going to show me something. And so Carrie was swimming across the pool. And it was one of those bonding times. We were just having a great time. And all of a sudden, this very annoying person 
and from somewhere up in one of the balconies of the hotel was screaming at us and screaming. And I was really upset. I said, this is a, a special bonding time for a dad and his daughter. And why don't you just keep your mouth shut? And then I heard the word drowning. And I thought, no, she's not. And I turned around and there was Lisa. Lisa had gotten in the pool, three years old, and she was treading water, except she was six inches under the surface, and she was drowning. All of a sudden, that annoying voice was a voice of an angel, and I turned around and pulled her out, and I thought, sometimes we see God's word as that, a screaming voice that's annoying, instead of saying, oh my goodness, he has a perspective that we don't have. And he's able to look down and give us instruction that's life-giving. That's what we want for our children, that they see that God's word is good. Our life verses, a couple is first is third John verse four. I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. And uh, that's what we should be asking God to help us in every way to help our children do that. The second area of modeling is a love for God's people. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And then it says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The church has actually taken a pretty big hit these last three years with COVID, with the lockdown period and Churches rushed immediately to get things live streamed so that we could at least be a part of what was happening in our individual homes. And that there was a, a great grace in that, that we actually had a way to continue to get fed. The churches had a harder time recovering from people being comfortable to watch church at home. And I, I obviously there's always going to be a need for that. There are reasons that we can't come to church. Some people are infirmed. Some people have issues that they just can't get out, childcare, whatever. But I just would say for most of us, as we're really trying to help our children embrace the community of Christ, for which we were designed, we were designed for a relationship. We were never designed to go it alone. And I think especially as our children get towards those teen years, having them a part of something bigger than your family, being surrounded by like-minded people, by other kids who are pressing towards the cross, that sort of stuff is invaluable in our journey together. And for us as parents, that provides a great amount of support. So helping our children to see how good it is to be a part of the community of faith, that it is more important than many, many other options that come our way on Sunday morning, or this church also has a Saturday night service. So we just want to encourage you to make sure that you're in church as much as you can be. So many parents will come to us and say, oh, we want to be in church, but our children play soccer on Sunday. And that's really not a statement about the children, it's a statement about the parents. The parents are saying we want our children to be in sports rather than in Sunday school. We love sports. Our children all played sports. We worked with the NFL. But let me just tell you, your kids aren't that good. They're not going anywhere. Why would you have them miss hearing God's word so that they can play sports on Sunday? Be creative. Get them in different times. Talk to the coach. Try to change it. But make sure that your kids are getting spiritual input. And let's say one thing, which I think is obvious if you're involved in Maranatha, but 
make sure that your kids are going to a church that's vital and alive. We think your adolescent should have a whole lot to say about where you go to church. If they wake up on Sunday morning and they are not glad but sad to go to church, start thinking about, are we in the right place? You want your children to be in a place that they're being fed. And then thirdly, model a love for his purposes. Model a love for his purposes. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We want our children to be embracing, uh, and we want to model a purpose in life. And really, that starts at a very, very young age. As we continue to draw them into God's Word, as we continue to model what it is to live a surrendered life, as we continue to grow in Christ-likeness ourselves, we help to create a picture for our kids that's much, much greater than themselves. Unfortunately, we live in a culture that is very, very entitled. It's very overindulged. And we have a lot of kids who think the only purpose in their life is to kind of get what they want and to do what they want. If we don't help to dispel that with something that's much larger than that and that is actually true, which is that they were created for a purpose, they're just like snowflakes, fingerprints, and the rest, there are no two people that are exactly alike. And God, in his purposes, has created each one of our children just as he has each one of us to make a unique contribution to this world that only they can make. And for us to help to build that vision within our children from the time they are young, I think that it will help them, especially when they begin to navigate the teen years where a lot of boredom, a lot of lack of understanding of purpose, a lot of lack of drive outside of themselves is often the playground for kids to get into a whole lot of things that will be harmful to them. But if they understand that God has a unique purpose for them, Scripture talks about you are fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together in your mother's womb. There's nobody else on earth that can do what God has appointed for you to do. That kind of thing can really draw a child's heart to the Lord and help them to navigate towards the cross rather than towards all the side roads that are available to them. We talked uh, this weekend in the worship services about the difference that mission trips have met to our children, where it gets them outside of the norm, and they understand there's something bigger than just their little community, and they see a purpose in living. And we as parents have the, the opportunity to be creative, to expose them to experiences, to, to go to camp or to be involved in mission trips, those things which will help them see beyond themselves. And we need to be intentional about that. Uh, do we have a plan? Do we, are we intentional about what they're in, how they're going to grow? You know, we have a plan for just about everything, but do we have a plan for the spiritual development of our children? When we moved to New England, we found that New England is very different than California. New Englanders are really uptight about education. I mean, they enroll their children before they're born on a waiting list. They get in the right preschool because eventually they want them to get to Harvard. And uh, my first sermon in New England, I said, it appears to me that you're more interested that your children get into Harvard than heaven. It was the last time I spoke at that church, but, 
But it's true. It was true. They put way more thought into academics than they did the spiritual growth of their children. If their junior hire said, I don't want to go to church on Sunday, they said, oh, okay, you can stay home. I don't want to force church on you. But if that same junior hire said, I don't want to go to school tomorrow, they said, tough, you've got to go to school. Well, why would we make our children go to school but not to Sunday school, not to church? And so it's this intentional uh, work that we are involved in. So the second major area is live a life of unconditional love. Live a life of unconditional love. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you weren't willing. This, we have a father who is constantly wanting to gather us in. We have a father who, when we're prodigal, has his arms outreached, waiting for us to come back. So how do we express unconditional love. Well, unconditional love is expressed through time together. And aren't we all too busy? It's so hard for us to have time with our children. But John 1.1 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Uh, God didn't send an email. God didn't send a video. God sent his son. And he dwelt his, among us. He pitched his tent among us. And I think as parents, one of the things that we are challenged to do is spend time with our kids. Uh, and, and there's really no substitute for that. They may not always ask for it. They may not seem like they appreciate it, but it's critical. We love Paul Tripp. And Paul Tripp, in a, a talk he gave, says that we spend time through three areas, interest, presence, and community. Interest. What are they into? Ask and get involved in things that they're involved in. And some, many of you raised your hands that you have children under the age of five, so you're probably well acquainted with Candyland and other games like Sorry that are just so repetitively boring. And some of you are ready to poke your eyeballs out when they say, yeah, let's play Candyland again. We would just say, don't poke your eyes out, just play Candyland. It is truly that, we talked about sacrificial love last night, we talked about it a bit on the weekend. Sacrificial love means putting aside our agenda and trying to meet our kids where they are. Now that's different than having our world revolve around our kids. We'll address that as well. We don't want to make the mistake of communicating to our children that they are the center of not only the universe, but of our universe. And unfortunately, there are parenting styles that reinforce that. It's all about the kids, all of our energy, resources, et cetera. It's all about them. And all too often, those well-meaning parents want to lose touch with one another, so the marriage slowly dies. But secondly, it builds up a lot of potential narcissism in our kids, like we're the greatest thing on earth, and everybody better know that. That aside... Genuinely understanding what makes our kids tick, what they really, really enjoy, what spells love for them, 
is what we need to be engaged in. We talked last night about studying your mates so that you know how best to serve them and how to sacrificially love them. The same is true for our children. For many of us, we end up projecting what we really like to do on our kids, and we just assume they will like to do it as well. We have to be really intentional students of our children to understand what actually meets them. We were with a friend of ours, and uh, he said that he is rebuilding a Mustang, an old Mustang, with his son. And he says, I have no interest in mechanical things, but my son wants to rebuild a Mustang, so we're rebuilding a Mustang. Uh, I don't know... But at least for most guys, we don't tend to just, let's just sit and talk to each other. But while you're turning the wrench and while you're working, those are those times where often conversation happens. And then interest. What are they into? Uh, we talk about that. The second is presence. Be there for them. Again, they may not always say we, we're so glad you're there, but, and they may ask you to drop them off two blocks from school. So nobody sees with you. But they really do like to have you there. Our youngest daughter, Julie, played three season sports. And one day she came home and she said one of her friends at school for her 16th birthday got a brand new BMW. And she told us that. And we said, that's interesting, which is parental language for dream on, sweetheart. And... Uh, Two weeks later, they were on the field, and Virginia and I made a, a, a really concerted effort that either both of us or at least one of us would be at every game that our girls played. And so we'd change our schedule to make that work. And Miss BMW pointed to us and said, I'd give it all back. She said, I have played three season sports for four years and my parents have never come to one game. And so Julie told us that story. We said, yeah, it was either giving you a beamer or going to the games. We decided to go to the games. Our kids need our presence. And uh, we know life is busy. We know it's demanding. But uh, work around your schedule. Ask your boss, can I take the afternoon because my child has a game or a concert or something, and then I'll work later tonight or I'll work from home. Uh, just make sure that it's a priority for you. And then thirdly, the area of community. Uh, we're going to suggest that your house should be a gathering place for children in the neighborhood. We actually had a family that um, came to our camp for many years, and one summer they arrived at camp, and they said they had just gone through a kind of major remodel in their, back, in their backyard. And we said, what did you do? And they said, well, we put in a pool, we put in a basketball court, and I know you're hearing cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. He said, we saved up a long time to do this, but he said, our kids were just entering adolescence, and we thought, we want our place to be the gathering place. So we may need to borrow money right now. We just need to get this done because if we miss this window, they're going to grow up in somebody else's backyard, and we want them to grow up in our backyard. We went to no such lengths. Paul just learned how to make chocolate chip cookies. And the girls would have their friends over, and the cookies were coming out of the oven. And I'm just telling you, those kids hardly left the kitchen because they all were so excited to get freshly baked chocolate chip cookies. So we were kind of a part of whatever happened 
because kids liked to come to our house because we had cookies. I mean, that seems so simple. And you may be thinking, yeah, well, that won't work for me, and maybe it won't. But figure out what does work. Use your home as a place where kids have a safe place to gather and where you know exactly what's going on. Do not be the parent that allows all the kids to go in the basement and you close the door and say, don't worry, we won't come down. Don't put your children in that kind of a position. Be a part of it. Let them know this is an open home, this is a safe home, and we have to be pretty present to ensure that it stays that way. A uh, second area of unconditional love is expressed through celebrating their uniqueness. How many of you have more than one child? How many of you have two children that are different than each other? Yeah, you know, you, you think you got it down with the first one, and then you get a second. And totally different. What worked for one doesn't work for the other. Uh, Psalm 139 says, For you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. That applies to every child. That every child is fearfully and wonderfully made by God. And they are so unique in their temperament, in their, their makeup. And yet, they need to know that we are going to celebrate their uniqueness. And I will tell you that this is where unconditional love becomes very challenging for us. First, let's just acknowledge, none of us can unconditionally love our children perfectly because we're imperfect. We're humans. And most of us were raised with at least a high level of conditional love, is my guess. It's kind of part of human nature. It's easy to love something that's pleasing to us. It's easy to love a child that's obedient. And it is challenging to love a child or to like a child that makes it's just difficult to raise. And there are those out there, right? And so I, I just met with a woman last week who said, oh, no question, my parents' love was so conditional. If I did the right thing, they were proud of me and they expressed love. If I did the wrong thing, they withheld their love. They felt like that was going to be the motivation for me to do it better next time. But she said, all it really did was undermine my confidence in my parents' love for me. So this unconditional love call is one that we will never fully accomplish, but we're going to have a better shot at it if we continue to allow God to keep working in our own hearts. This was very real to me because we had two children that were more similar to my temperament. I don't know if you find this, but when you have a child and you say, okay, everybody, we have to have our rooms clean by noon today, and two of them get right up and they just get it done. And then the third one, it's 11 o'clock. Hey, have you gotten your room done yet? No, 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 I thought you said 12. And I'm thinking to myself, we well, can't do it well if you don't even start until now. That dissonance that happens with a child that is much less like me makes it harder to be just really honest with you. But our call is to somehow, by the grace of God, make sure that all of our children feel unconditionally loved. And that's, again, going to be a stretch and a growing edge for all of us, really. But studying our children will help this. It was very helpful to me when our uh, one of my mentors actually gave me the book entitled Nurture by Nature by Teeger and Teeger, which is a book that unpacks the Myers-Briggs as it applies to children. And I'll never forget the day that as I was reading through that book, I came upon the 
temperament type that actually matches Paul's. This is the child's version of it. And as I'm reading it, I'm realizing, oh my goodness, this is this child that challenges me more than our other two children. And then it dawned on me, if I met Paul when he was eight, I probably wouldn't have liked him. (laughs) But he grew up into his temperament, and obviously I deeply love this man. And that helped me so much as I understood God really has innately wired our kids differently, and it is not impossible to love them or to learn to love them and to learn to work with the differences that we have. So incredibly important to understand that our children are different. And often, uh, maybe if we're neat, both of us, and they're a little more creative, we can sort of ride them. Why don't you, you know, make your room bed neat? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do this? But they're different in how they're made, how they're wired. So we want to make sure that we celebrate their uniqueness uh, rather than have them be created in our image. We want to say, are you reflecting God's image with your uniqueness? And thirdly, in the unconditional love expressed through confession, and forgiveness. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as in God, Christ forgave you. Do you ever find it hard to ask forgiveness from your children? Uh, I remember when Carrie, our oldest, was, I think, like five years old, I was really upset with her about something, and uh, I was getting ready to discipline her, and she said, Daddy, you're angry, and that is a sin. And I said, you're right, Carrie. I am so sorry. And will you forgive me? And then we got back to the discipline. But uh, I think it's hard for us sometimes to say, I am sorry. And often when we say it, we would say, I am sorry I got angry with you, but if you had done this, whatever follows the but is all that they hear. All you're saying is, it's not my fault I got angry, it's your fault. And we've taught them from a young age not to take responsibility for their actions, just to blame somebody else for it. And I was responsible for my actions. It wasn't Carrie's fault that I was angry. And I think we need to help our children see us as parents who are willing to confess and ask for forgiveness. I actually think that's one of the most important things that we actually model as parents, as Christ followers, that... If we handle our sin in a gospel-centered way, if I am willing to say to my child, I am so sorry, I sinned against you, will you forgive me? That is one of the most important things that we model for them. But we do want to say that in all of our years of working, we would say this is one of the weak spots of Christian parenting. As Paul said, many of us immediately go to the but, but... If you hadn't, if you had, if you'd listened the first time, if you had followed through, if you had, and all we've taught them then is, I don't have to take responsibility for myself, so you don't have to take responsibility for yourself. We've spoken also with many people who've said, I would never, I would never confess to my child that I did something wrong. That would cause them to lose respect for me. There are actually some ethnic groups that would feel that that would be the like, why in the world would you ever, ever do that? That would make you look like you're a weak parent. We would say, actually, the message to your child there is that you are a child, you are a person that is growing in Christ-likeness, and that you take really seriously your sin, just as you're going to want them to take seriously their sin. 
Uh, third point we want to focus on tonight is live a life that embraces the goodness of authority. Live a life that embraces the goodness of authority. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And we touched this about this this weekend in the worship services, uh, the need for all of us to embrace authority, for that to be a positive thing. Uh, so first, again, in the area of modeling, it's embracing authority in our own life. And then from 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 3, it says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. There is an order and authority in the home that God has given. And most of us don't like that. We don't want somebody who's over us in authority. I think most of us have what I call the AOP. That's authority oppositional disorder. Uh, we don't want somebody telling us what to do. And yet it's so critical for us to model embracing God's word as the final authority. So embracing God's word in our own life and then embracing the authority as a parent. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Uh, Paul Tripp says this, God makes the invisible authority visible by sending people of authority, parents of authority, to exercise authority to children who need authority. You stand as a visible and audio representative of that authority. Uh, we want to, we need to be parents who have authority over our children. I think we're dyslexic in our parenting today in many ways. It's parents obeying their children rather than children obeying their parents. We're, we're taking our cues from our children. We don't want them to be uncomfortable. We don't want them to be unhappy. And we're listening to them and then responding accordingly. I think it was Ross Campbell who first said, rules without relationship produce rebellion. And some of us were raised in homes that I said it, you do it, don't talk. And so it's rules, but they were distant. They had no involvement. But I don't think we often understand there's another side of it, and that is relationship without rules produce chaos. Some parents say, I just have a relationship that's sweet with my children. I let them do anything they want, and that's going to be chaos. Uh, so there's this balance that we have this relationship, which comes through spending time with them, being involved with them. You know, we were talking about playing Candyland. If you're too busy to play Candyland at four, don't expect your child to have time for you when he's 14. Uh, I don't think we can just say, oh, when they get old enough, then I'll connect with them. That's something we do from young age and just keep it going all the way up. So be the parent. Be the parent. All of the studies on children show us that from secular sources as well as Christian sources that the most secure children are those who live within loving boundaries, consistently enforced, well reasoned, wisely driven boundaries. And again, 
we so often carry into our parenting, our experience. So if we were raised in a very authoritarian family, children are to be seen and not heard. And we just think that children need to be completely under our thumb and shouldn't do anything outside of that. You go all the way over to the other side, which is very, very permissive. But quite honestly, it's the children who are being raised in homes where there is authority. We call that authoritative parenting. Very different than authoritarian. Authoritarian is heavy-handed. You do it because I said it. I'm in charge. Don't talk back. Authoritative is a parent who moves under the authority of God's rule in their own life and trains their children through the word of God, the ultimate authority. And it's within the context of relationship because that's how God's authority plays out in our life. That's exactly what he models for us. So the two are inextricably bound. They have to be done together. We have to be as high on relationship as we are on authority. We're going to move through just a number of sort of bullet points in this area of parenting and discipline. And uh, the first is be the parent. That is taking the role of leadership in your home. Second is save discipline for disobedience. Uh, Not for childish irresponsibility. Sometimes our children are loud or that, and we get angry and we're disciplining them or they spill something or they break something. They're kids, what you want to make sure is that what they're disciplined for is defiance. It's not just uh, they're, they're six years old and they're running around and they knock something over. And so ask God to help you to have your discipline for defiance, not for irresponsible uh, childish action. Uh, thirdly, keep working on consistency. Is consistency so hard? I don't know how many times will parents say, oh, I know we should be more consistent, but we get so tired. So we just let them do that. We really want to make a, a pitch for being consistent. The story is told to me when I was three years old that uh, I was playing with toys on a living room floor, and my mom came in. She was nine months pregnant with my younger sister, and she came and said, Paul, we've got to go pick up your toys off the floor. And I said, no. And she said, you need to pick up your toys off the floor. And I said, no, I'm not going to. And then she said, if you don't pick up your toys, I'm going to pick you up and set you on the stairs, and you will sit there until you pick them up. And I said, you're too fat. You can't catch me. Well, mama caught me. And I sat on the stairs for eight hours. I tell you that because back then I was strong-willed, not at all anymore. But, but the main point is, she said, you're going to sit on the stairs until you pick up your toys. Now, when I tell this to a woman's group, they say, well, what did you eat? Nothing. Your children can go for days without food. I didn't get lunch. I didn't get any food for eight hours. Because my mom said, you're going to sit on those stairs until you pick up your toys. Now, give them water. That's okay. But but I learned that day, no matter how fat mama was, she's in charge. And she means what she says. So many of us, after 20 minutes, would say, okay, we're going to be late now for my appointment. Let's go. I don't know why we were leaving, but whatever it was, it didn't happen. And that was a watershed day. 
that I understood that when my mom said something or my dad said something, they meant it. So that begs two things. One is don't say what you're not going to follow up. I'm going to lock you in your room for a week if you do this. You're not going to do that. Say it and then follow through with it. Then fourthly, the displeasure of the discipline must exceed the pleasure of the disobedience. Every time we speak on parenting, people want to say, do you spank, do you not spank, what do you We're not going to answer that. But what we are going to say is this, the displeasure of the discipline must exceed the pleasure of the disobedience. Whatever your discipline is, if it's not effective, it's not the right discipline. When I was like 10 years old, I was acting up at the table, and my father said, if you don't straighten up, you're going to your room. I didn't straighten up, and I went to my room. I'm an introvert. He came in 10 minutes later. He says, are you ready to come back to the table? I said, no, Dad, I'm good. I didn't want to be at the table in the first place. That's why I was acting up. That is ineffective discipline. See, know what the discipline is. Know what your leverage is and use that with your children. Yeah, it was several years ago that we were in Paris being toured around by a friend of ours who lived there. And as we walked down the Champs-Élysées, she said, and we were on a Sunday, she said, it's actually illegal for these stores to be open on Sunday. They're, they're supposed to be closed. And we said, well, they're clearly all open. And she said, oh, yeah, the fine is so much less than their profits that they all just stay open and pay the fine. That's a great illustration of a discipline that is ineffective. And we understand that this is a, a widely disputed and discussed, how do we discipline our children? If you keep in mind that the goal of discipline is training, the goal of discipline is not punishment. The goal of discipline is training. That's what the very root of it is. And that all, all discipline doesn't work the same for all of our children. They are different people. We could just sternly talk to one of our children and it was like, oh, I'm so sorry, and she meant it. She was very sensitive. She wanted to do the right thing. Another one of our children, you had to go to great lengths to make sure that she understood that what she was doing was not acceptable, not appropriate. And by that, I mean, you know, timeouts or taking away dessert or today it would probably be taking away screens. I mean, there are many things. You just have to know what works with your child and then leverage that with the goal that their behavior is going to change. If you're facing the same thing over and over and over and over and things aren't changing, you need to sit back you need to be on your knees. You need to ask the Lord, okay, what can I do that will help get this child's attention so that our discipline is effective? And let's just say that raising your voice should not be the discipline. You just say, if you don't do this, this will be the discipline. But sometimes they just don't do anything, and so we just say it louder, and they don't do anything, and then we're screaming. Just, if you don't do this, you're going to... This is a consequence. And just enforce it. There's no need to go five times. And then, after you're screaming, they say, okay, I guess dad and mom are serious now. Uh, have a long-term perspective, though, and never give up. Never give up. When Carrie, our oldest, was eight years old, uh, she was a real challenge. And we had a couple really 
pretty major standoffs with her, getting her to be obedient. Yeah, actually what precipitated this next slide is it was a morning that I can't even really remember what our conflict was over, but we locked horns. And she was clearly being defiant. She was not going to do what I asked her to do before she went to school. And I said, well, honey, you're not going to go to school until you do it. And she said, you can't keep me home. That would make me truant. And I said, I'll take care of the truant officer if he comes, but you're not going to school until you do this. She refused to do it. She missed the start of school. I said, you need to obey me. And we went on for quite a while. I finally said, I'm going to call Daddy and ask him to come over from work. We lived on Catalina Island. That was a three-mile boat trip up the coast. And she looked at me with very large eyes. She said, you would call Daddy to come home? And I said, I will. Would you want to obey? And she said, no, not really. <laughs> Paul came home from work. It was the two of us working with her. It literally was a standoff. Now that I'm thinking about it, it sounds very much like you and your mother, so we absolutely know where this came from. It was hours before she finally decided that it was better to obey than to continue in the standoff. And by that time, we were all crying, and we had been praying over her. We did all sorts of things. And I have to say that at the end of that, because we stood our ground and didn't buckle, we didn't. I didn't say, okay, we'll deal with it later. You, you can't miss school. You've got to go to school. We felt that if we lost that battle that day, we would have lost so much ground with her. So if our children are convinced that we're actually not going to follow through, that we're not going to actually do what we say, we will actually lose all control over them. And to be really honest, it's much easier to teach that lesson when they're young than when they're older. The stakes are so much higher once those kids get our size or larger or they're just so much more experienced, they have so much more knowledge that they can play against us. And if they haven't learned that submitting to your authority, that you mean business, that this is what we do, you are going to do this, I am in charge, it's going to be very hard to rein them in later on. Not impossible, but hard. During that time, standoff, this is a note that we got from Carrie. You have both been mean to me. I feel awful. Notice the spelling. If you want to see me, come in my room. Carrie. <laughs> don't catastrophize. Don't give up. Keep loving your children, keep disciplining your children. When Carrie turned 16, uh, or on Virginia's birthday, she wrote this, my mom is the greatest mom that ever lived, is my biggest skating fan, is always looking out for a deal, is loving, kind, hospitable to all, has a servant's heart that's almost too big to fit inside her body, is always willing to put others before herself, is a trustworthy and loyal friend to many, is my best friend, is always there to listen and give priceless advice, is the kind of mom my friends wish they had, is a godly woman who constantly is striving to be what God wants her to be. Mom, these are just a few things that come to mind when I think of you. Thank you for being who you are in all circumstances. Thank you for investing so much in my life. It means more to me than words can express. I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my mommy, you'll be. Love, Carrie, age 16. That was a reward for not killing her at eight. Don't catastrophize. Don't give up. Remember that parenting mistakes are not the end of the world. They 
you're going to make them. We all make them. We ask forgiveness. We, we recalibrate and then go on. And then effective discipline requires parental sacrifice. If you're going to tell your children something that they can't do, usually it involves something you need to do as well. Because you need to either be there for them, be involved with them. I remember once that Julie, our youngest, was acting up, and Virginia said to her, if you don't straighten up, you can't go out to dinner. We were going out to dinner, which is a very special thing for us, and you're not going to be able to go out for dinner. Well, Julie is smart enough to know you're not going to leave her home alone. And that was true. So Virginia didn't go out to dinner. So Carrie and Lisa and I went out to dinner. And all of a sudden, it made a pretty big impact. Not only did mom and dad follow through, but mom sacrificed. We want our children to understand that we love them. We're willing to sacrifice for their good. And then, eighthly, focus on encouraging your children. Uh, don't exasperate them. Sometimes we are so interested in our children doing well that we ride them way too much. Sandra Wilson, in a book that's no longer in print called Shame-Free Parenting, said, if parenting perfection is your goal, you slay every opportunity of parenting satisfaction. It's a great statement. If parenting perfection is your goal, then you're going to be uptight to make sure your children are always doing the right thing. You're going to look for catching them doing the wrong thing, and there'll be no joy in parenting. Sure, we want to be good parents, but don't be obsessed with being the perfect parent, uh, with having perfection in your home. We often say that we find what we're looking for. And it, this point was really driven home to me when our middle daughter was seven. It was a Saturday. Her job that day was to clean the bathroom. As soon as she was done, she called me, Mama, I'm done with the bathroom. If you want to come and look at it, I went into the bathroom, and I started right off by saying, what a great job you've done, Lisa. Thank you so much. But in the process of that, I noticed that the faucet still had toothpaste splatters all over it. She had missed cleaning the faucet. And so I immediately followed my affirmation of her with, a, but the next time you do the bathroom, just remember to get the faucet. And I wasn't even that far into the sentence I looked at her face, and she had big old crocodile tears running down her cheeks, which is a knife in my heart to this day. And I looked at her, and I said, oh, Lisa, I'm so sorry. I'm not trying to discourage you. And she said, I know you're not mama, but it seems I can really never get it right. Well, you kind of heard that if you were here for marriage last night, that I kind of have these standards, and Paul often feels that he doesn't quite get it right either. But at that moment, I realized that I would discourage the heart of my child if her perception was nothing she ever did was going to meet my standard. So I'm not saying that we just have to lower our standards automatically. What I am saying, though, is we really need to factor in what is age appropriate? What should my expectation be? How can I help my child grow without setting the bar so high that they cannot reach it and therefore lose heart? Then help your children develop their own personal convictions. We've talked about that, how critical that is, that uh, they, when they're alone, are going to say, no, I'm not going to do that, or no, thank you, I'll leave. Uh, we've, we've, we just love hearing that. We had some friends who their, their son played on a soccer, traveling soccer team, and all the boy, they had the boys staying in the hotel rooms by themselves, and their son came out 
and was just by himself in the lobby. And one of the coaches said, what are you doing? No, I'm just here. Well, what it was was the the boys were looking at stuff on screen that he knew he shouldn't have. And so instead of being there, he just walked out. We go, yes, that's what we want our children to have the convictions, whether we're there or not, to do the right thing. And then the last thing before we take a break here is, is especially like for teens, uh, we want you to encourage you to keep them busy. <laughs> uh, idle time, free time is usually not a good thing for any of us, but especially for our teens. Uh, our girls, as we said, all were in sports, and this is how their day went. They got up at 6, they went to school, they had sports till 7 or so, they got home, they had dinner, they had homework till 11, they went the next day, got up at 6, Monday through Friday, that was their schedule. And then on Saturday, they slept in. Never waken a teen on Saturday. We have parents say, oh, I'm not going to let you sleep the day away. Why not? What a great way to get no trouble. Just let them sleep. They sleep till noon. You get up. You do something as a family. Sunday is shot with church, and they're back at it. And if they have free time, get them a job. Do something. But for most teens, being home alone is not a good thing, especially today. So make sure that they're busy. Don't be afraid to set limits, especially in media, for them. If you have younger children especially, uh, and we can talk more about this, but be very careful what gadgets they own. One of our dear friends, Bill Bachman, worked for Apple. He was in charge of design of everything that started with an I. So iPhone, iPad, all of that. Were, he was in charge of that team, and he had an office right next to Steve Jobs. We were in their home when their sons were 10 and 12, and their 12-year-old said, Dad, why can't I have an iPhone? He says, because you're not old enough, son. He said, but everybody literally in my class in Silicon Valley has an iPhone except you, except me. And he said, oh, yeah, and when you're mature enough, I'll give you one, son. Dad, you designed it. And he said, I know, and that's why you can't have it. I know what it's capable of. See... I think we need to be that. Our grandson has what's called a gag phone, gap? Gab. Gab phone. It's a gab phone. It looks like a regular iPhone, but all it has is texting and phoning. No internet. And I asked him when I was driving him to school a couple months ago, I said, how do you feel about having that phone? He says, it's good because it looks like I'm like everybody else, but I don't have the opportunity to look at the internet and get in trouble. Uh, so we can do that with our kids. Um, just one other tip on media. Don't allow it in the home, in the room, their bedrooms at all. Uh, when they go to bed, put all the weapons on the counter, turn them off, plug them in. But you don't want your teen to have an iPhone in their home, in their bedroom, or a computer. Uh, you, those things, there's a curfew on it. And make sure you as a parent, that last thing is, and I don't know this is a random thing, but this was important for us, no sleepovers. Now, you can disagree with this, and that's fine, you're just wrong. But um, <laughs> nothing good happens after midnight at a sleepover, and you'll pay for it the next day 
when your kids get home because they'll be grouchy all day and your whole family pays for it. And usually kids are not doing good things after midnight. So what our policy was, we didn't want our child to be ostracized, so she went to the party and then we picked them up at midnight. So they could be part of it all and then, oh yeah, my mom and dad said I need to come home at midnight and they came home. But we find a lot of parents say, I'm not going to stay up till midnight to get my child. Well, put on your adult pants. Go pick them up at midnight. Sleep in the next day. Take a nap. Do whatever you need. But make sure that we're, we don't want our children to be so weird. We want to make every effort we can that they can be part of things. But don't allow them things that may hurt. Okay, that's enough. Uh, we're going to talk after the break about uh, God's authority, and we're going to talk about some gender stuff. If you have questions that we haven't covered, that you want covered, uh, rip some piece of paper or something and just put them right here on the, uh, po- on the stage in front of us, and we'll try to deal with those in the second hour. Jared, Am I turning Jared? it over? Oh, there he is. Here he comes. Let's, let's give a round of applause to... Jared, because usually that doesn't happen, I know, so. All right, so we're going to have a break until, let's say, quick math. Okay, let's go to 7.50, what does that give us, 13, 7.55. We'll go to 7.55, we have snacks out there, uh, Chick-fil-A cookies and some coffee and waters and stuff. Uh, I wanted to highlight real quick, we, there's a, a bundle deal for you guys tonight. Uh, it's one of the items that we bought this time because uh, we got everything else at family camp. But uh, the family devotional, and then um, there's letters to my daughters uh, talking through just kind of the heart of a father for his kids as they look towards marriage. And then this one is Trailblazers, and it's, it's navigating those milestones as your kids go through the teenage years. So those are available, all three, for $35 back at the book table. And then as we come back, just as our little teaser, uh, I'm going to just put Paul on the spot and say that as we come back, he'll tell you how being a considerate husband leads to... Uh, nudity in a hotel hallway. So that's just a little teaser. I'm not going to say any more. You have to come back after the break for that to make any sense. Uh, so cookies and snacks available out on the porch. Come back by 7.50. Thank you. Okay, folks, we are ready to roll again. So come on back in. We're going to start with a couple of questions, and apparently Gar- uh, Jared said, I'm going to tell you a story. <laughs> when did he say that? He said, I'm going to tell them a hotel, my hotel story. <laughs> That's yeah. Well, we'll answer two questions, and I'll tell you the story, and then we'll get going. And we will have you out of here by 8.30. Any advice for parents of young adults, 18 to 25, who move back home? What can and cannot be applied? Great question. Well, um, the, the short answer is, as long as they're under your roof, they're under your 
control. Um, and certainly they're not eight-year-olds, but uh, it's just not a place that they can do whatever they want. Like if you have meal time, they eat meal with you or whatever your deal is. And they're, if they're going to be out late, certainly they may be out later, but they will do you the courtesy of letting you know when they're coming in, that sort of thing. And increasingly we're finding uh, young adults in this era, age coming home, but then telling the parents, you can't tell me what to do, I'm an adult. And then you simply say, and that is true. And when you move out, you can do whatever you want. Um, if you want to be an adult, you start paying for food and lodging, and you can do that. But if you're doing that, then you're under our authority here in the home. And, and set a time. You know, we're going to give you a month to get your own place. If, if it's not working here, we understand that. Uh, but I think what we don't do is have our house just be the place that they just take advantage of us any way they want, and they're not following directions. And I think that's especially important if there are younger siblings at home. They're modeling, they're watching what's happening at that age group. So we would say as much as possible, think ahead before they move back home. We understand it's an expensive world out there, and for many, they just really can't make it. But be realistic and set clear, clear boundaries so that you're just not constantly feuding or resentment building up in you and feeling really disrespected by them. I think respect is one of the really big things that you want to hold the line on. So respect for your authority, which doesn't mean that you're going to control every one of their movements, but they will willingly submit to what you require of them. Uh, again, an adult child question, going to church or marrying a Christian are not priorities to my adult children. Any advice? And I think the first advice is just pray, pray, pray. Uh, second is, if they're open to conversation, have a conversation about that. Invite them, uh, especially sometimes to a special event if there's a concert at church or something, just to help them come in if they're, for some reason, not interested in doing that. Uh, you certainly can't make them marry a Christian. Uh, the question is, are they Christians? Um, and, you know, you don't want them making that second most important decision of life to marry somebody who's not going to be a follower of Christ. But again, you speak into their life, do it with compassion, uh, do it with care. We are just talking uh, somewhere the other day saying adult children already know what you think. <laughs> you don't need to lecture them anymore. They know what your views are. So love them, but hold your standards, whatever they are. Uh, if they're doing things in your home that are not part of your, your home policy, you need to enforce that. Uh, and again, you want to try to make uh, being a follower of Christ winsome. And if you areas that, and you think, boy, in our life we really mess this up with them, ask their forgiveness for it. Say, I don't know, I, somehow I just feel maybe your view of church or being a f follower of Christ was affected by how we lived as a couple or da-da-da-da-da. Okay? Quick. Yeah, I would just add to that, to follow up on that, is ask your adult children, especially if they're not prioritizing marrying a believer, my guess is it says something about their own heart, 
is lost or not really where it should be in terms of their own pursuit of Jesus. And so I think you would ask, just ask questions like, you know, is, tell me about what's going on inside of your own heart. And they may tell you things that you don't want to hear, but that are probably important for you to hear. And you may discover that there was a, a big wound on their soul, something that happened at church or something they observed in your home. And have a posture of hearing and not of just reacting, because you really want that communication with them to grow between you so that when they are starting to make movements towards Christ, they will seek you. Okay, the teaser that Jared gave to get you back in, and I'll tell it very quickly, was Virginia and I were asked to do a weekend for a good friend of ours for their 20th anniversary, a gathering of like 10 of their best friends, couples, and it was in Avila Beach. Uh, we we're staying in this at the Avila Bay Inn, which is a very sort of boutique, quaint hotel. has a spiral staircase, rooms on the floor, rooms on the, above, everything looking into the lobby. Uh, Virginia wasn't feeling well when we arrived about midnight on Friday night after having to be at a funeral that day. And so she was exhausted, not feeling well. So when we woke up in the morning, I didn't want to waken her, and we had these heavy curtains, so it was pitch black in the bedroom. And uh, so I went in, I took a shower, and then came out, and then I had to go back in to the shower to get something. But when I opened the door, it was just going to be a light shining right in her face. And so I wanted to be considerate of her, and so I backed in to the in the room so that the light would not go through. And as the door is shutting, I'm thinking, wow, that's a heavy door for a bathroom. And then there's a click. And I thought, oh my goodness. And I turned around and I am in the lobby, buck naked. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay. I, I'm not, if I pound on the door, there are all these other friends in accompanying rooms and they're going to come out. What's going on? So I'm trying to be quiet. And then I see a maid on the bottom floor and I think, I'm sure she's seen a naked man. You know, I'll just count my losses and ask her to come up and just open the door. And then I think, what maid is going to let a 67 year old man buck naked into a room because he wants to go into a room? So I'm cowering there and I'm knocking on the door. And meanwhile, I am starting to come to consciousness and I recognize somebody is pounding on a door and I think that is so rude. I can't believe somebody would pound on a door in this beautiful hotel. And then as I come to more awakeness, I realize that sounds like really close. Like that sounds like our door. So I get out of bed and I go and I look through the peephole. Of course, you couldn't see me because I'm in the fetal position in the corner. <laughs> So I, but the pounding continued, so I knew that it was our door, and I said, who is it? And I hear Paul say, me, open the door. So I open the door, and in tumbles my stark naked husband. And I said, what are you doing? You pervert. <laughs> We actually use that story on occasion, thank you, Jared, for <laughs> illustrating two things. 
either sacrificial love that Paul was really just protecting my sleep by trying to keep the light from coming in on me. So we can't miss that point. He genuinely was trying to serve me. But we also use it to illustrate temperament differences, that Paul is such not a detail person. I think pretty much most people would recognize the difference between an outdoor door and a bathroom door, but that just didn't really register. They were all very similar, three doors. (laughs) As we said to our daughters, it took us 44 years of marriage before we got the most embarrassing moment ever. And we have a friend that's pastor of a huge church up in in Sacramento, and we will refuse to tell him when we were at that hotel because we're absolutely certain he would try to get the surveillance tape. (laughs) Use it as blackmail. <laughs> okay, here we go. We've got a half hour. We're going to roll, so buckle up. Uh, embracing the authority of God's Word. We have talked about this, uh, so we're not going to belabor it. God's Word is our reference. But where we want to focus for just a little while, and we're not going to do this justice because of our time, but one of the questions that we are asked more and more has to do with gender issues and uh, our whole culture and where it's going and how we're dealing with those issues. And so the, the phrase we want to just keep hearing is uh, compassion without compromise. Uh, compassion without compromise. Mm-hmm. Or truth with grace. I think that both of those are just so important. We're in a very awkward time culturally because as the head of STEAM has increased over the last four decades, we're now at a place where truth is more offensive than it's ever been. And because we're judged for our truth as being bigoted, homophobic, or whatever else you want to call it, many of us have lost our voice. We are afraid to speak truth in love. And we acknowledge it's just very, very challenging to navigate this but we cannot lose our voice. If we do, you realize the other voices that are speaking are the only ones that our children are gonna hear, they're the only ones our neighbors are gonna hear, and to be honest, the longer we hear them, the more normalized they will become. It's just the way it works. And so we just want to start by affirming that God's word is our ultimate authority. It is the revelation of his design and his instructions for our life. He hasn't changed his mind. We recognize that there are movements, progressive Christianity, the third way, and others that are actually teaching that God has changed his mind on creation, but he hasn't. The irrefutable truth is that from Genesis to Revelation, the only time marriage is described is the union of a man and a woman. That was set in motion in creation. It comes to us in symbolic form then, as we talked last night from Ephesians 5, that it is the symbol of Christ and the church, two very distinct entities. They're not interchangeable. And all the way through Revelation, this is God's design and heart for marriage. The other reality is that every time homosexuality is mentioned in Scripture, it is on the list of things that are outside of God's design, an aberration, an abomination. So even though we have been convinced in many, many circles 
that it's impossible to still believe that today, that love is love after all. Why should we care who loves whoever? I think we have to see it so much more deeply as an organic issue of rebellion against God and his design and the truth of his word. Now, our kids have largely been raised in a world that is just surrounded by pride. They get the messages constantly. There's no way to escape it, which means that where we could have protected our children from a lot of this, you really can't. It is in their faces. They have it at school, their teachers, etc. And again, we would just say the really big issue here is that nowhere in history has our identity been defined by our sexual preference until recent times. That suddenly a person is who they sexually prefer. Where up until this time, we believed identity was established far more organically as believers, and hopefully we still believe this, that our identity is to be found in Christ and in Christ alone. So that crosses all ethnic barriers, that crosses all racial issues, that crosses everything. Our identity is established in Christ. He hasn't changed his mind on that either. And so I think part of the way that we equip our children in this is make sure that, one, we are really genuinely in the word. Um, Kirsten Watson is a good friend of ours. Her husband, Benjamin, had 18 years in the league, and some of you may know him. He's a very strong voice for sanctity of life and is a well, well-spoken, just man of God who believes in the authority of Scripture. And Kirsten said her daughter came home from her public school, second grade, and she said, Mommy, you know, my friend has two mommies. How is that possible? I mean, is that right? Can, can a person have two mommies? And Kirsten said, you know, I just sat down with her and I said, well, let's just look at the Bible and see what God has to say about this. And she started back in Genesis to the creation of Adam and then of Eve, who was like but like opposite. God didn't make two Adams. He didn't make two Eves. But there was one of each. And that was his plan. And that's what he set in motion. But then she went on to say, but our world is very, very broken, and there is a tremendous amount of evil in it, and it comes up in many, many different ways. And one of the ways that it is showing itself prominently these days is in the whole area of our sexuality and of marriage and the rest. So we're falling short as a culture of believing that God's word is the authority, and so all sorts of other voices are getting in the mix. But we have great confidence that God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who loves us, who sent us son to die for us, that it's his job because he designed it, he defines it. And so that's the place we sit. Now, you love your friend, and you don't separate yourself from her because she has two mommies. We need to learn to navigate this with grace and with love but we don't need to accept that it is how God intends it to be. One of the things that's happening increasingly is we're defining our theology by experience. And so the neighbors, uh, two women uh, who are lesbians are living together, they have children, and they are better parents, it seems, and their children are better behaved than the heterosexual Christian parents that you know. And so you say, well, how can that be wrong? 
because they are so much better. They're so nice. And it's so easy for us to let experience trump Scripture. And again, we're always speaking with compassion, but we always need to come back and say, but this is what Scripture says. You know, when Jesus met the woman who was caught in adultery, he didn't say, neither do I condemn you. Now continue to enjoy your promiscuous life. I don't want to tell you not to do that. No, he said, neither do I condemn you. Now don't sin anymore. And so I think it's so important for us to have hearts of compassion, but don't be soft on what God's word says. It is the final answer. Just because somebody is nice doesn't mean that what they do is okay. You may have a neighbor who's really nice, but he's selling drugs. That doesn't mean selling drugs is okay. You go, what does scripture say? Also, we hear a lot, well, a loving God really wouldn't expect somebody who's same-sex attracted to not be able to express their sexuality. I mean, that's just like cruel, isn't it? Well, some of you know that we have a daughter who's 40 and she's single, and she would love to be married. She was playing bride when she was three years old. In fact, we went to a wedding when she was five, and on the way home, she was crying. And we said, what's wrong, Lisa? And she said, by the time I get old enough to get married, all the Christian guys will be gone. (laughs) And we assured her that wasn't true, and now she might think we lied to her, but... (laughs) She has such a deep heart for the Lord. She's just not willing to settle for someone who doesn't have that kind of heart. And she lives fully for Jesus. She's a professor at Cal Baptist. She leads missions trips. She lives in community. She's just living her life so well. But I have people who say, so she's still honoring that, you know, like purity thing? She's a virgin? I said, yeah, she is. They said, she's wasted the best years of her life sexually. That's just crazy. Why would God expect her to do that? And she's very content knowing that her sexuality, the fullness of its design, was for the marriage covenant and not for any place else. And so she's chosen to walk in obedience. And to me, it's kind of the same thing that we have, met, we have a number of friends that are same-sex attracted, but they are absolutely devoted to Jesus and are living celibate lives. This world is not our home. It is broken. There are going to be hardships for all of us. There are things that all of us sacrifice. And I think that as the church has sort of shifted away from seeing sexual behavior only within the context of the covenant, I think it's sort of opened the gate for us to accept a whole lot of other things that really aren't part of God's best for us. And as parents, again, we're called to be parents here. I think of all the ways that we try to protect our children. We put them in seat belts until they're 18, you know, in car seats. Uh, you know, we do all these things. We protect them. You can't have cookies for breakfast. That's bad for you. And we do all these things to protect our children. But then when they say, I feel like I'm somebody of a different gender, oh, okay. Why would we do that? We know that's harmful to act outside of God's design. Um, Bill Meyer, uh, the secular comedian and night show host, uh, made a comment on this. He said, when I was eight years old, he said, I wanted to be a pirate. And he said, I am so glad my mom didn't allow me to cut off my leg, poke out my eye, 
and put a patch on. And you think, how absurd. What mom would allow their son or daughter to do that? And he said, what would happen if all the parents of my friends let us all do that? And see, a child at that age obviously is too young to make any of those decisions. They don't even know what a preference is. And so we just want to say again with compassion as a parent, you say, well, sweetheart, that's not who you are. You're a girl or you're a young boy and have conversation with them. So there's a lot more that we could do here, which we don't have time for. Um, When we're finished tonight, Adam has been kind enough to put a list of books that Virginia has compiled on this subject. And so there'll be three slides that will rotate through if you want to take a picture of those books. Uh, They're books that have been very, very helpful in this area. Yeah, and I do need to make a comment on the trans movement. If you study history at all, you realize that this is a very recent phenomenon. And those of us who are kind of studying this, and an author that helped me really understand what was going on is named Abigail Schreier. And she's written the book Irreversible Damage. And she identifies social media as one of the largest contributing factors to this trans that's, that's fueling this trans movement. That up until five years ago, the likelihood of a female seeking to transition to a male was virtually non-existent. It was like 0.0006% of the population that ever. And now these doctors are seeing groups of girls, 14 to 16-year-old girls who come in all together and say, we decided that we want to be boys. And sadly... There is legislation, there are rules on psychologists, on teachers, and on medical doctors that if a child expresses a desire to, of, that we would formerly have called gender dysphoria, that they want to be, rather than put them into psychological counseling and saying, you know what, let's find out what's going on in your life. Tell me about your social media account. Who are your friends? What's happening with your parents? None of that. They are literally told that they just have to support, they have to affirm what this child is saying. And many times in the conversation with, well, we can get you going on transition drugs, we can get some hormones for you if you want to go that way. We have doctors who are literally considering leaving practices because they can no longer deal honestly with their patients. I think it's something we just have to all be very, very aware of. It touches every one of us in different ways. The whole issue of homosexuality has been huge for us. I have four gay nieces and nephews. And some will look at it, three of them come from one family, and some will look at it and say, oh, clearly that's the gene, which you realize has never, ever, ever been supported in any way. But we would say, no, 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 it was a vitriolic marriage, a very upset family system. So I guess we'll wrap this little section up by saying, if you're married, keep your marriage alive. And if you're raising children, continue to have open conversations with them. And if they say something to you like, yeah, I don't know, sometimes I feel like I'd rather do the things boys do than that girls do, don't fly off the handle and say, don't talk that way. Just say, oh, talk to me a little bit about that. I was a Tom girl when I was growing up. I loved playing ball and climbing trees and doing all of that. And I'm just telling you, if I lived in the world today, somebody would track me. So all of that is just to say we do have to be very aware. We have to be very prayerful. We have to be 
very compassionate, but we also have to be unashamed of what truth is because that's where true freedom will be found. The last area is finally live a life of expectation. But as that is written, no eye has seen nor ear heard nor heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So the first expectation is expectation of seeing the best in your children. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is a man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. We had a friend who had a lot of children, and he was ridiculing me because we only had three. And he said, you know, Scripture says your quiver has, should be full. And I said, well, I guess my quiver's small because three is full. Uh, God is going to give each of us the, and I said to him, I said, I think God is more interested that we have straight arrows than a lot of arrows. And we each need to just know what our capacity is, what our situation is, and ask God to help us to raise them. So expectation of seeing the best in your children. Um, the importance of our children uh, being seen uh, in, in best light, because we have a great influence over our children. Our spoken words really do mean a lot. Some of you have seared into your souls very unkind or cruel or denigrating things that a parent said to you somewhere along the line, and it still hurts deep down. Our words really do matter. And let me say again, we, we're all going to say words somewhere along the line that we regret, so we have to just make sure that we follow that with a genuine confession and asking for forgiveness. But I will say that, at least for us, one of the big learning curves was looking for the best in our kids. I mean, we had a lot riding on our kids doing well. We were family pastors. We wanted to make sure that they did it right, and that meant we had to do it right. And we found in our younger years of parenting that we spent more time kind of looking for things that weren't going right so we could make sure we corrected it immediately. It was a hard lesson for us to learn that actually our children did better when we were looking for what was going right in their lives. And it reminded me a story of Benjamin West, who was an early American painter. And he tells the story that one day his mom went out doing errands. They were left with a babysitter. Benjamin was five. His sister Sally was three. When his mom came home, Benjamin had painted a mural on the kitchen wall his mother came into the kitchen, and as Benjamin writes the story, she stooped down next to me, put her arm around me, and said, why, Benjamin, it's Sally. And he said, she then kissed me on the cheek, and that kiss made me a great American artist. And I thought, oh my goodness, if I had walked in and my kid had drawn a mural on the kitchen wall, I would not have thought that was a great idea. And I think that's often how we react. And so for us, one of the big changes in our course when our children were younger were what we call the marble jar. We know some people don't allow marbles in their house, so use whatever you want, cotton balls, kicks, whatever. We explained to the three girls, this started probably when they were three, five, and seven, that we had a little, a little box of marbles and then a little jar next to it. And we said, anytime daddy or I catch you doing the right thing. So first time obedience, sharing with one another, picking up your toys after you're finished, anything that we see you just choosing to do the right thing, a marble will go in the jar. There was one jar for all three girls. Never set up three jars 
and increase their competitive nature already. They're not in competition with each other. What we're trying to do is help them to see how good it is actually to cooperate and to obey. And then we said when the jar is full, and we started with a relatively small jar so they could have early success, um, what would be some fun ways to celebrate that? And we brainstormed together, and it was, you know, go out for ice cream or go to the petting zoo, or we put that list on the refrigerator and commenced with the marble jar. And we don't really like to use the word magic, but it kind of worked like magic with our kids. Maybe they were easily bought off. I'm not exactly sure, but every time we caught them doing the right thing, a marble went in the jar. And there were certain rules. We would never take a marble out. If they disobeyed right after that, they didn't tell us when to put a marble in. But I want to tell you, we think it changed the girls' behavior for sure, and we used that for several years very effectively. But I think the bigger change came in us mm -hmm. because we were watching for them to do the right thing rather than the wrong thing. And it really shifted the atmosphere of our home. Secondly, the expectation that God is more powerful than the enemy. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We just want to breathe confidence into our children that uh, they're gods and that they come with, uh, you think of David and Goliath, and uh, David says, you come to me with the javelin and the sword, I come to you in the name of the Lord. And we want our children to know that we have confidence in them, we're praying that God will protect them, but use them. Um, our little uh, grandson, when he was playing uh, soccer, I don't know how old he was, five years old at that time, he, he, he went in his class and said, does everybody know Jesus here? And, and so then he came home and he said, you know, Billy doesn't know Jesus. And, and, I, and so we need to get Billy a Bible. And his dad said, yeah, we'll do that. And so he was on his soccer team with him. And, and uh, Brandon came running over to Gabe and said, Daddy, do you have the Bible? You know, the Bible for Billy. And he said, son, just get out and play soccer. And, and Brandon said, well, what's more important, him getting a Bible or me playing soccer? <laughs> and the, just breathing confidence that God is powerful, and it's, what a great privilege to serve him. Then last, expectation of a legacy worth living. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from our children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, now follow this, to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments." The prayer is a legacy that years from now, your children and grandchildren will love the Lord. It's not just are we going to get through, but there's a, a desire for that. And we know that some of us come from really, really difficult backgrounds. And we just go, ah, can we make any difference? Well, it only takes one generation to change. Uh, I'll never forget the Christmas. We were at a Patriot Christmas party with our team members, 
And one of our players, we were talking about Christmas traditions and everything, and, and all of a sudden he said, I never had one. He said, not only was it not about Jesus, it wasn't about anything. We never had Christmas in my home. And he was holding his little, what, six-month-old baby, six-week-old baby, and Isaac, and we looked at him and said, you know, when Isaac gets to be your age, he can say, oh, we always had traditions. We always celebrated Christ's birth at Christmas. It only takes one generation to change. And that's our, that's our goal, isn't it? Our privilege as parents, we're not going to do it perfectly. Uh, we need to continue to pray that God will fill in the cracks. But as he does that, that we will raise up the next generation to follow him fully. And our final word just is a great encouragement that prayer is huge in this journey of parenting. It's huge in marriage as well, but we have spent more time parenting from our knees than from any other place. There's nothing we've done in life that has been more humbling to us or made us feel less wise at various junctures along the line than parenting. It's hard. It it changes with each child. And we just felt that verse from James 1, 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to you. Hang out with people who are doing it right. And by that, I don't mean perfectly, but watch for families that are farther down the road than yours and sidle up to them. If what you see, the fruit in their family is something that's very appealing to you, see if you can get connected with them. Have older kids in your kid's life who are making great decisions. Their reinforcement is something that you will need. And then finally, I will just say, there's no magic bullet. It is truly the grace of God being worked out in our lives. We made plenty of mistakes along the line, but we are so humbled that we have three daughters in their late 30s and early 40s who all love Jesus. The two that are married have wonderfully godly husbands. They're all in serving ministry. We could not have done that for them. It was God working out his purposes in their lives, and he got a hold of their hearts early. The girls were one time asked at a family panel, actually, that we were doing at Forest Home a couple years, many years ago now, so what worked? What what worked? You're a ministry family. Your parents love each other. You love your parents. You're loving Jesus. What worked? And they said several things, but the final thing they said was, we saw Jesus changing our parents. And that gave us great hope Mm -hmm. that he could change us. Mm -hmm. There's no substitute for the authenticity of our own walk with Jesus. We cannot pass on what we don't have. Mm -hmm. Why don't you pray for us? So, Father, we just are reminded tonight that we are in your hands and that you are our hope, that you are the truth, the life, and the way. And every parent in this room, every grandparent in this room, every step-parent in this room longs to be able to pass the mantle to the next generation. And many are in really challenging situations. Some have children that are in great rebellion. And the, the wounds on this parent's soul are deep in the concern for their child. All of us have challenges in this journey of parenting, and you get that. But you have promised to be enough 
we're never enough, but you are enough. And so just tonight, I commit every single person in this room to you for a deepening of their heart for you and for wisdom that goes beyond their years as they parent their children. And I pray especially that you would be so gracious to bring those who have traveled off the path back to you. And I just pray that our great comfort will be in knowing that you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and that you love us more than anything. So it's in the strong name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen.